Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John, and uh, we are going to embark on a new chapter this morning, and we are making some progress here. We're going to chapter 7, and uh, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of John chapter 7. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been uh, going through this Gospel and uh, just taking a few verses at a time and kind of working our way through this uh, record of the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, so we're going to pick it up where we left off last week, John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, for your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to continue to study your word together as a church family, and I ask that your spirit would come now and illuminate our understanding, Lord, that we would uh, be able to to see and to feel uh, what was going on here in these verses, and Lord, that you would make application of these to our lives today, that we'd leave here uh, having learned something having been encouraged in some way, convicted in some way, but most of all, Lord, more conformed to the image of your Son. We pray this in His name. Amen. Well, we have an expression that we like to use uh, to encourage people to patiently wait for something that they're eager to see happen. We say, all in good time, right? All in good time. We may have Worn that phrase out with our kids, right? They're always wanting something. And you're like, hey, 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 time out. All in good time. All in good time. And what we mean by that is that, hey, don't worry. Don't get in a hurry. Whatever it is you want will happen when the time is right. All in good time. Well, as Christians, I think rather than saying all in good time, it would be more accurate to say all in God's time. We know that God is eternal. He's always been and always will be. There's never been a time when he did not exist. In fact, we can't even refer to God in relationship to time because he exists completely outside of time. He's not in time. He's not bound by time. He is timeless. And yet, God was the one who created time, and he chooses to accomplish his plans and purposes within time. We know that everything happens according to God's sovereign timetable, and he providentially orchestrates everything to happen at the perfect time. We've been learning that in our study of Ecclesiastes uh, on Wednesday nights in in the fall. We're going to 
continue our study of, the, of that book, that Old Testament book. But probably the most familiar passage from the book of Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. It says, there's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And on and on and on this list goes, back and forth, a time to do this and a time to do this. And then it climaxes in verse 11, it says, He, God, has made everything appropriate or perfect in its time. And nowhere is this concept put on display more clearly than in the birth, death, resurrection, and return of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born at the perfect time, according to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. And so Jesus was born at the perfect time. He also died at the perfect time. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In 1 Timothy 2, 6, he says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And so Jesus was born at the perfect time. He, He died at the perfect time. And he will return at the perfect time. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.14, keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. You'll remember that right before Jesus ascended back to heaven, his disciples asked him when he would return to set up his kingdom. And Jesus simply said, it is not for you to know the, what, times and epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Acts chapter 1, verse 7. In fact, before his resurrection, not even Jesus knew the time that God had ordained for him to return. Now, that might be hard for you to comprehend. This is like, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was God. How could he not know something that God knew, right? Well, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus said this, but of that day and hour no one knows, talking about his return, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. So Jesus himself said he didn't know when the Father had ordained for him to return. How are we to reconcile this in our minds if Jesus is God, right? What's going on here? Well, I think we have to look at Philippians chapter 2 in that passage that talks about the kenosis, right, where uh, Jesus being fully God came to earth in the form of a man and he voluntarily limited the use of his divine attributes. And we've been seeing in the Gospel of John how Jesus did demonstrate his omniscience from time to time, right? He knew what people were thinking or what they were mumbling about, even though he was out of earshot. He he knew people's character having never met them. But overall, Jesus restricted his omniscience to only those things that God wanted him to know during the days of his earthly ministry. And what we see throughout Jesus' life and ministry, his time here on earth, was that he was always sensitive to the fact that he was doing the Father's will according to the Father's timetable. He always did exactly what God wanted him to do, exactly when God wanted him to do it. And that's really the underlying theme of these next couple of chapters. Uh, And here in the verses we've already read, 
Uh, notice what Jesus says in verse 6, my time is not yet here. Verse 8, my time is not yet fully come. Verse 30, so they were, at, they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And so we see that there was a, a sovereign schedule that Jesus was working or running on, living a, according to that. Uh, four other times Jesus said later uh, in this gospel that his time had come. John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, it says that again, Jesus spoke to the Father and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, he, that the Son may glorify you. And so because Jesus was living according to this sovereign schedule that the Father had set up for his life and ministry, there was a right time and a wrong time for everything he did. And so here in these first 13 verses of chapter 7, uh, we are given an example of the right time and the wrong time and God's sovereign schedule for Jesus' life and ministry. Now, you remember uh, that the main thrust of this section of John's gospel is the increasing opposition to Christ's works and words. In chapter 6, uh, we just got done looking at the mixed reactions to Christ's discourse on the bread of life that he gave um, to the people uh, in, in the, uh, the synagogue in Capernaum which resulted in a mass defection of those who weren't truly committed to him. And that defection or maybe rejection of Christ's claims continues here in chapter 7, where we learn that even his brothers didn't believe in him, didn't believe he was who he said he was. And as a result of their unbelief, it appears that they were goading him to capitalize on the upcoming Feast of Booze, or Tabernacles as it's often called, to prove once and for all that he was who he said he was, the Messiah. And so in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8, John recorded what happened when Jesus made his third visit to Jerusalem. He's already been there two times before. In, in chapter 2, verse 13, it was his first visit. Chapter 5, verse 1 was his second visit. Now this is his third visit to Jerusalem during the Feast of Booze where he presented himself as the, the deliverer who the feast anticipated. And so really verses 1 through 13 serve as a preface to Jesus' sermon that he gave at the Feast of Booths. It sets the scene for what he was about to teach about him being the water of life and the light of the world. And so let's just look this morning and just kind of begin wading into this section of the Feast of Booths by looking at the wrong time in God's sovereign schedule, verses 1 through 9, and then the right time in God's sovereign schedule, verses 10 through 13. Let's look at the wrong time. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. After these things uh, is simply a reference to 
the previous chapter and what Jesus did. Uh, he fed the 5,000. He walked on the water. He calmed the storm. He revealed himself as the bread of life uh, to the masses there. Um, and, and, and you need to understand something uh, that in the white space between chapter 6, verse 71, and chapter 7, verse 1, there's about six months that had transpired. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because we know that the events in chapter 6, according to chapter 6, verse 4, happened uh, right before the Passover. Uh, it says, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was near. The Passover took place in April. And then you get to chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booze was near. And uh, the Feast of Booze was held in October. So do the math, right? There's about six months somewhere between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Again, this is just a good reminder that John didn't include everything that Jesus ever did uh, in his gospel. In fact, he, he, he concluded his gospel by saying this. Uh, this is John 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So he was not claiming to give us a complete chronology uh, of everything that, that Christ said and did. Um, in fact, he didn't record anything about these six months that Jesus spent ministering in the northern part of Israel. All he says here is that Jesus purposely stayed in the uh, northern part of Israel in Galilee uh, because uh, down in Judea, which was the southern part of Israel, um, the Jewish religious leaders who were headquartered there in Jerusalem uh, were wanting to kill him. Ever since he cured the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda there, uh, they wanted to kill him. Back in chapter 5, verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So he was not about to go down to Jerusalem before his time was right, before the time was right. Now, according to the other gospel writers, it's always helpful, right? We've also got Matthew, Mark, and Luke to fill in the gaps here for John. And according to the other gospel writers, we know that Jesus spent the majority of this six-month period training and equipping the 12 who he had chosen to be his disciples. And we met the 12 uh, in, in the last section of chapter 6. Three times he mentions the 12. And uh, I think this is a great reminder to us of the fact that Jesus' primary focus was not on reaching the masses, but discipling a small core group who would carry on his ministry after he was gone. The Great Commission, right? Matthew 28. Jesus said, go and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I, what? Commanded you or all that I taught you. So basically he was saying, hey, go, I want you to go do what I just did with you for the last three years. Go find people that you can disciple, that you can share the good news of salvation with, that you can help them come to know Christ, you can baptize them, and then you can teach them what it means to obey and follow Christ. And so this is a, a very important aspect of Jesus' ministry, which is often overlooked, because we, we, we typically see Jesus right in, 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 out in the open, in the public arena, teaching and doing miracles. But the majority of his time on earth during those three years of ministry, was spent alone with his disciples. 
In fact, there's a, a classic book. If you've never read it, you need to read this. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. How many of you ever read that book? The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. It's a classic work uh, basically highlighting how Jesus' whole point uh, while he was here on this earth was not to, to, to reach you know, the crowds, but was to disciple his disciples, was to train and equip his, his small band of men. And that was his plan, the master plan of evangelism. How do you reach the world, right, with the message of salvation? Um, well, it's easy, Jesus. Get a big PA system, get a website, you know, get, get on TV, right, and you can reach the masses. He said no, not that he had those resources available to, to him. And, and frankly, I think even if, even if he did, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have used them. He, he chose to, to make his message known one person at a time, through discipleship. And so he grabbed a, a group of guys around him and, and trained and equipped them to go out and train and equip others who would go out and train and equip others who would go out and train and equip others. And next thing you know, you got a group of people sitting here in 2013 called Lakeside Bible Church. And it happened through discipleship, one relationship after another and that's why I appreciate what John MacArthur has said. He said this, quote, The measure of any church's success is not the size of its congregation, but the depth of its discipleship. And the true mark of whether or not we're succeeding here as a church, we're, we're, we're being the church that God wants us to be, is not how big we get, but how deep we get, how mature we become as Christians. Um, that's the goal, is discipleship. So we must never forget or neglect the priority of discipleship, of training up the next generation of leaders. Uh, Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 2, to, to his young protege, Timothy, his young disciple, he said, Timothy, the things that you've learned and heard and received from me, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others. And so Paul says, hey, I, I taught you things. Now you go find guys you can teach who will be faithful to teach others. And so, this is discipleship. The question is, are you involved in the discipleship process here at Lakeside Bible Church? Are you being discipled? Is, is, have you invited someone into your life, right, to teach you what they know about following Christ? And, and have you uh, invited yourself in someone else's life, right, to, to uh, teach them what you know about following Christ? And all of us need to have a Paul who is mentoring us, and all of us need to have a Timothy that we're mentoring. And there's going to be a flurry of this discipleship, this equipping, this training taking place this next month, in the month of August, as we begin to train and equip our, our, our children's workers for a new year of ministry in our, in our children's ministry. And Billy's going to be doing that with the, the, the student ministry staff as they, they get ready to disciple the young people this next year. And we're going to be doing that with our grow group leaders as they prepare to shepherd uh, our, our grow groups for another year. This is all discipleship. And again, it's typically the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, that you don't really know about. All you know about is Sunday morning and Wednesday night, the baptism service and, and the big Lakeside Live thing we're doing, and, and you don't know about all these meetings, these discipleship training times that go on behind the scenes to, to train and equip people to train and equip you. And yet that's really the heart and soul of this church. It's simply trying to pattern our church after the pattern of Christ, the pattern he set while he was here on this earth. Notice verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews 
the Feast of Booze was near. This is uh, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the three uh, great feasts that God commanded the Jews to celebrate on an annual basis. The Feast of Booze is mentioned in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 16. Um, Every Jewish male was required to attend three feasts a year, the Passover feast, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booze. And the Feast of Booze commemorated God's provision for the nation of Israel while they wandered uh, in the wilderness after God had delivered them from the bondage to Egypt and before he allowed them to settle in the promised land. And so during this seven-day celebration, the Jews would live in these little booths, these little tabernacles, these little makeshift huts that they built out of branches and leaves to symbolize their lives in the wilderness when they were nomads before they had a permanent dwelling in the Holy Land. And so they'd all go outside of their houses and they'd actually build a little hut, a lot of times on their roof, and they'd live in that hut all week just to remember what it was like to be in that wilderness. And they would celebrate the the ingathering of the harvest and at the same time, they would anticipate the coming of the Messiah who would reign over them and restore peace and prosperity to the land of Israel. Hint, hint, right? This is gonna be a perfect opportunity for Jesus to present himself as that Messiah who would bring in that era of peace and prosperity and who wanted to reign over, not Israel, but wanted to reign over people's hearts. That's the part they didn't get, right? According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the Feast of Booze was the most festive and joyous occasion all year. And what set it apart from the other feasts were uh, the, the well-known uh, rites of water drawing and lamp lighting that happened on a daily basis. Uh, the entire week, the temple was illuminated by this large uh, golden lampstand that uh, reminded the people of the pillar of fire that guided them in the wilderness. Uh, every day, a priest would carry water from the pool of Siloam and, and, and uh, pour it out on the temple floor, reminding them how God miraculously provided water from a rock. And so both of these things, again, were intended to be types or pictures of the promised Messiah, and so Jesus appropriately applied them to himself. We're going to see that later on in this chapter in verse 37, where Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's playing off this rite of the water, uh, the, the water drawing. And then in chapter 8, uh, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world, playing off this, this, the lighting of these candelabras throughout the week. So we'll talk more about that as we get into what he has to say uh, in the rest of this chapter. But look at verse 3. Therefore his brother said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers were believing in him. That's interesting, this little phrase, his brothers. What are we to do about this phrase, uh, this has caused no bit of controversy or no small controversy throughout church history. Um, some people, maybe this is the first time you ever even heard that Jesus had brothers. You never even thought about that. Um, well, the Catholic Church, interestingly enough, um, denies that Jesus had any brothers because they want to protect the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? That Mary remained a virgin her entire life, never had any other children. 
And so what they say is brothers here, they play with the Greek language and say, well, it could have meant cousins. So these are, these are Jesus' cousins. Or they say that uh, Joseph was a widower and these were kids that he brought into his marriage with Mary from a previous marriage. Um, but again, what does the Bible say? Therefore his brothers said to him, and so the Bible clearly teaches that Mary and Joseph had other sons and daughters. In fact, in, 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 at the very birth of Christ, Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says that Mary took her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Why would, why would Luke mention a firstborn son, right? If it was her only son, right, uh, he wouldn't have to say that. And so Jesus was not her only child. Um, Matthew chapter 13 Verse 55 tells us or introduces us to his brothers. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it says this. When he came to his hometown, they said, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And so Jesus had four brothers. And then look at this. And his sisters. We don't know how many sisters he had, but apparently he had some sisters as well. So here we have these four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. James um, authored the New Testament epistle that bears his name, was also the leader of the church, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Judas, um, who later became known as Jude, most likely, because he didn't want to be mistaken for Judas, right? Judas Iscariot, so he went by Jude. He wrote the epistle that bears his name. But at the time when that John was recording of here, Jesus' brothers had yet to embrace the fact that their half-brother was truly the Messiah. Well, at least we'll give them that. They they were half-brothers, right? Because Joseph was not Mary's, or not Jesus' real dad, right? So we'll we'll give you that. They were half-brothers, but they were brothers nonetheless from Mary, birthed from Mary's womb. So they hadn't truly embraced him as the Messiah. In fact, they thought he was insane, and tried to have him taken into custody. We, we know that from Mark chapter 3, verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. They were like, yeah, our brother's a loony bin. He thinks he's the Messiah. How crazy is that? Can you imagine growing up with a guy like that? I mean, think about it. Some of you younger kids, and your brother or sister walked around saying, I'm, I'm, I'm God. I mean, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? That'd be weird. If your brother or sister was claiming to be God, and yet that's exactly what he was claiming. And yet they they continue to egg him on, at least at this point in John chapter 7, to go to the Feast of Booze and prove that he was who he said he was. You say you're God, you say the Messiah, then prove it. And his brothers had likely witnessed this mass defection of disciples that we uh, saw Uh, at the end of chapter 6, and they thought that Jesus might be able to regain some of these disciples by putting his miraculous power on display in the the capital city of Jerusalem. And so they tried to convince him that if he really was hoping to gain public attention, that it wasn't going to happen in Galilee. Come on. I mean, if you want to become world-renowned, if you want everybody, if you want the world to know that you're the Messiah, then it ain't going to happen dinking around here in Podunk, Galilee you got to go down to where the people are at in Jerusalem. 
And so in their minds, the Feast of the Booze was the perfect venue to pull off some kind of publicity stunt that would capture the attention of the entire world. And, and it was true, the world would travel to Jerusalem. Every Jewish male was required to attend the feast, and so uh, he would bring his family, and they would travel together from cities all around the world uh, to the holy city, and the population of the holy city would swell beyond its normal number of residents. But notice the, the skepticism here. In verse 4, he says, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Listen, if you're trying to get the word out, you're not, you shouldn't be trying to keep this a secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Which, again, sounds very similar to what Satan said when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, then do this. Or what the crowds would say when they mocked Jesus on the cross. If you are the Son of God, come down, for, Right? And so even though they sounded skeptical and cynical and sarcastic to some degree, we don't know for sure what their motive was for urging their brother to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. Perhaps they wanted to see more miracles for themselves, or maybe they wanted the attention that would come from having a famous brother, even if he was a loony bin, right? Um, Or perhaps they were envious of Jesus, kind of like Joseph's brothers, and were hoping, hey, yeah, why don't you go to Jerusalem, thinking that he might get killed, And their problem would be solved, right? Or perhaps they were wanting to see how everyone else responded to Jesus, which would help them to decide whether or not they would believe that he was the Messiah. Well, whatever the motive, we know that it wasn't until after Jesus died and rose from the dead that his his brothers believed in him, placed their faith in him as their Messiah. We, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, 7 that one of the people that Jesus um, revealed himself to after he rose from the dead was his brother James. Um, you say, how do you know Jesus' brothers got saved? Well, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, talking about the upper room when uh, Jesus had ascended uh, back to heaven and told them to wait there in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come, right, and to empower them. Uh, they, they were all in the upper room, about 120 people. All the disciples were there. It says these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's a great little statement. It could be, we could just easily just blow past that without even grasping how cool that was that Jesus' brothers got saved. They repented and believed. And talk about having to get over a hurdle. Talk about choking on the gospel, right? I mean, when it's your own brother claiming to be God. And I just point this out because I know that many of us have unbelieving family members. Some of you have unbelieving parents, unbelieving children, um, unbelieving spouses or siblings. And, and your heart is burdened for them, aren't they? Isn't your heart burdened for them? And it's typically the ones that our hearts are most burdened for are the ones we're most persecuted by, right? In fact, Psalm 69, 8 talks about how Jesus would be estranged from his brothers, that there would be a division between he and his brothers. 
Some of you know what that's like. You've experienced being estranged from your spouse or being estranged from your brother or sister or maybe even your children or your parents because they don't know Christ. And they pretty much keep you at arm's length. And I would just say in light of the the miracle that happened in the hearts of Jesus' brothers, I mean, if anybody could get saved, right? Hey, Jesus' brothers. I mean, if they could get saved, right, anybody could get saved. And so I would just encourage you to continue to, to faithfully pray for your unbelieving family members and patiently wait for God to save them in his perfect timing. Even the salvation of Jesus' brothers was according to God's sovereign schedule. And God has a sovereign schedule, perhaps, for your unbelieving spouse, your unbelieving parent, your unbelieving brother or sister or child. And this should give you hope just to continue to pray and trust God that his timing is perfect. I love the story of George Mueller. George Mueller prayed for years, I think some 30 to 40 years, he prayed for two of his best friends. And one of them got saved at his funeral. And the other one got saved several years later. He never, never lived to see the day when those friends got saved. You may never live to see the day when your loved one gets saved. But you continue to pray and hope that if God could save Jesus' brothers, right, he could save your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. Notice verse 6. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Two times he says, my time has not yet come which he's already said once before, if you remember, this was how he responded to his mother at the wedding in Cana back in chapter 2, verse 4, when she said, hey, son, the wine ran out. They've got no wine. I know you can do something about that if you wanted to, right? And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Again, Jesus was referring to the time when God had sovereignly scheduled for him to be arrested, to be tried, to be crucified, and then ultimately resurrected, which was the ultimate reason why God sent him to earth, was to redeem mankind through his death and resurrection, not just to go around multiplying fish and loaves and healing people and and doing all that stuff. And Jesus knew that his time was not now. It was to come the following spring at the, fa- at the Passover celebration. So just to put a little time marker here that we're only six months away from Jesus' crucifixion. Right here in John chapter 7. Only six months more to go in the life and ministry of Christ. But I think these statements that Jesus makes, my time is not yet here, my time is not yet fully come, just reveal how sensitive that Jesus was to God's sovereign plans and purposes for his life. In other words, it wasn't about him. He wasn't here to do his bidding, what he wanted to do. It wasn't about his will. It was about the Father's will. And his brothers, on the other hand, were clueless about God's sovereign schedule uh, for anything. And they couldn't have cared less about his plans and purposes for their lives. I mean, they, they just lived their lives according to their own desires, not in obedience to the will of God. They made their own plans and did what they wanted to do without giving any thought to what God wanted them to do. 
Hopefully that doesn't sound like your life. How, how, what's your life look like? Are you sensitive that God has a time for everything, that, that he has sovereign plans and purposes for you? Or, or are you just like wake up in the morning and say, well, what do, what, what do I want to do today? Or do you realize it's not about what you want to do today, it's what, God, what has God ordained for you today? What does God want you, what does God want you to do today? The reason why they paid no attention to God's timetable is because they were worldly men. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world couldn't hate them because they, were, they belonged to the world. And, and therefore the world loved them. They, they never had to deal with the hatred that he faced, that Jesus faced because he belonged to another world. Jesus came from heaven, not from earth. And uh, like a bright light, he showed up here on this planet and pierced the darkness of this wicked world. And if you'll remember from John chapter 3, it says that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and has not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And so not only did did Jesus expose the wickedness of the world, but he also exposed the shallowness of worldly religion that was useless to overcome these evil deeds. And as one commentator said, it's sad that when a sinless, spotless man came into the world, the world sought to kill him. The perfection of Christ's life showed how imperfect everyone else's life was. Just as a straight line reveals the crookedness of a zigzag line when they're placed side by side, so the Lord's coming into the world served to reveal man and all his sinfulness. Man resented this exposure of himself, and instead of repenting and crying to God for mercy, he sought to destroy the one who revealed his sin. If you're a follower of Christ, your life, my life, should also expose people's deeds. And as a result, people will hate us. Jesus went on to say in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before I hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the world, or excuse me, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. In other words, don't be surprised if you're hated by the world, if you're persecuted by the world, because if you are a follower of Christ who has been called out of this world, chosen out of this world, you're not of this world any longer, right? You're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be persecuted by the world. And if you're not hated by the world, and if you're not persecuted by the world, then it may be that you're not living any differently from this world. And if you're not living any differently from this world, maybe you're still of the world. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? persecuted. And so if you're not being persecuted, right, it's, it's, it's clear you're not living a godly life. Your life is not 
causing anyone to be convicted about their sin. I mean, if everybody thinks you're cool and you just fit right into to, to all of your unsaved friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates, guess what? You know, that means you're a friend of the world. And James 4, 4 says that if you're a friend of the world, you're a what? Enemy of God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. In other words, when you stand up for what is right and say what people don't want to hear, you expose their sin, and that makes them angry, right? Now, obviously, I'm not advocating being a jerk for Jesus, right? We talk about that. Don't be a jerk for Jesus, all right? There's enough of those out there, okay, that give Christians a bad name because they're just very ungracious, unloving in the way they communicate. But be gracious and speak the truth in love. But don't be surprised if you get persecuted for it because your life just, just your life brings conviction wherever you go. I'll never forget the story I read one time about a, uh, one of the famous golfers. I don't remember exactly who he was, but he was an unbeliever, and uh, he had an opportunity to play a round of golf with Billy Graham and two other guys. So they went out and played a round of golf, and, and uh, this guy, uh, went, when it was all over, he went to the driving range, and his buddy found him out there, and he was just, just smashing balls off that driving range, and he was, he was obviously mad. He was just infuriated. And so his friend came up and says, well, Billy Graham must have been pretty rough on you out there, huh? And he, says, uh, he said, well, what did he say to you? And uh, the guy just said he didn't say a thing. Billy Graham didn't say a word to this guy about his sinful life. He was just convicted by just being in the presence of Billy Graham. That's the way it should be in our lives, right? People are just convicted by being in our presence because there's something about us. Not that we're pharisaical, holier than thou. Oh, I don't do that. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do that. You know? No. There's just a, a conviction about us. There's something different about us, something otherworldly about us. Verse 9, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. And so he sent off his brothers. They went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, tragically without Jesus. They were following tradition, but missing the whole point of the tradition. They were missing the truth that all this tradition pointed to. And that was their brother, Jesus And I think this is a picture of of religious people in our world today who go to church every Sunday and they go through all these rituals and all these traditions and yet they're without Christ. They've never truly come to know Christ. And and what a tragedy when, when people who are so committed to tradition miss the truth. Don't be like Jesus' brothers who went off to church, if you will, right? without the most important thing, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, that was the wrong time in God's sovereign schedule. Let's quickly look at the right time in God's sovereign schedule. Notice the transition in verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, and he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. And so Jesus, after his, disciples, after his brothers had gone, Sometime after that, he left on his own. He didn't travel with the customary caravan that would have attracted probably attention 
that he didn't want. Uh, he did exactly what his brothers, or he, he did the exact opposite of what his brothers said. Um, rather than arriving in Jerusalem with a bunch of fanfare, he secretly entered the holy city without drawing any attention to himself. There would come a day in six months when he would ride into the city on that donkey, right, with all this fanfare. But this was not the time. And so he arrives halfway through this week-long celebration, and uh, Jesus knew, based on verse 1, right, that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Um, So he knew it wouldn't be wise to make this grandiose entrance. Notice verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? So put this together. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then notice verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? What were they seeking him for? To kill him. And when it says the Jews here, we're talking about the Jewish religious leaders, right? Who were expecting to see Jesus at this huge national gathering. First of all, because every Jewish male was required to come. By law, Jesus needed to be there. But also because they figured this was a perfect place for him to try to regain the support of the crowds and to upset this whole feast. And so they were lying in wait for him and preparing to to arrest him as soon as they got a chance. In fact, in verse 32, they do. They actually send out officers to arrest him. So that's what the Jewish religious leaders were doing. They weren't the only ones However, talking about Jesus, notice the crowds, verse 12, it says there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he's not. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. So the crowd was just abuzz with various rumors and opinions about who Jesus really was. And some were saying that he was a, he was a good man. Listen, don't ever fall for that dumb conclusion about Jesus, a good man does not make himself out to be somebody he's not. If all he was was a good man, he was a liar. He he surely would not try to get people to think he was God. That wouldn't be a good man. He would be a a deceiver. And that's what the others were convinced he was. He was nothing but a, a liar, a deceiver who was leading people astray. And if that was true... And he was deemed to be a false prophet, according to Deuteronomy chapter 13, that would be guilty, uh, he would be guilty of a capital crime and deserve to be stoned to death. I think that's what the, the uh, Jewish leaders were gunning for. But then look at verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. While they all had an opinion about who Jesus was, None of them dared to share it openly for fear of what their religious leaders might do to them. Because the consequences for going against the religious leaders in that day was severe and could even include being excommunicated from the synagogue. We're going to see in chapter 9 when the man who was born blind was healed and the Pharisees were running around trying to find out who it was that healed him. They got a hold of his parents and questioned them. 
And uh, this is what they said in verse 22 of chapter 9. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And that was the last thing a Jew ever wanted to do is get kicked out of the synagogue because that would just, you'd be cut off from all of Jewish life. And so everybody was kind of keeping a tight lip about who they thought Jesus was. And I love how one commentator just kind of painted the emotion of this scene. He says, in this highly charged atmosphere of secrecy, suspicion, controversy, and fear, where every precaution was being taken to ensure that Jesus was prevented from disrupting the proceedings, the man both loved and despised suddenly exploded on the scene. And that's what happens in verse 14. Jesus steps up to the plate. He steps onto the floor of the temple. And he begins to present himself as that Messiah that they were anticipating at the Feast of Booths. We'll have to look at that next time. But today, I want to leave you with one thought. We've been talking about there's a right time and a wrong time for everything. But there's one thing that is always the right time for. And that's for you to repent of your sin and to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It's always right. It's always the right time. There's never a wrong time to become a Christian. And it was God who said this, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It is the right time right now for you to make up your mind who Jesus is and to commit your life to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and uh, how it just pierces our hearts and it just, that just makes us confident that it's, that it's your word because it's so powerful and convicting and challenging, life-changing. And Lord, I pray that each of us would have the hope, the, the confidence that we know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. And Lord, that we would rest in your uh, sovereign schedule for our lives. And Lord, there's certain things I'm sure that we wish had already happened or would happen soon, but Lord, uh, we want you to accomplish your purposes and your plans in your way and in your time. And so just make us patient, patience, patient, patient. Help us not to worry. Help us not be in a hurry, but just to learn to wait upon you and trust you, and then wake up every morning and just uh, ask you to make us sensitive to, to, to what you would have us do uh, for you, what your will is for us that day. That we would live every day wanting to do what you want us to do rather than what we want to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.